Without a doubt, it's been a dramatic few years for Australians. The rate of transmission of the virus outside of China is fundamentally changing the way we need to now look at how this issue is being managed here in Australia. In our fight to contain the deadly COVID-19 virus, we've had to endure lockdown after lockdown. So the risk is real and we need to act quickly. We need to go hard. We need to go fast. We've just got to do this and we've got to do this for three days. So there'll be a lockdown for three days. We are declaring a state of emergency in Victoria under the Public Health and Wellbeing Act. That state of emergency will be effective from 12 noon uh, today and will run for four weeks. All of Greater Sydney, the Blue Mountains, the Central Coast and Wollongong will go into a lockdown with stay-at-home orders in place until midnight Friday the 9th of July. While there's no turning back the clock, what we do know now is that most of the world was not ready for a pandemic, including here in Australia. Australia had not done any kind of simulation exercise for the last eight or nine years. That really led to a lack of preparedness, for example, for the arrival of a cruise ship in a large city with people infected. And since our own patient zero first emerged down under, we've looked to science to solve the coronavirus mystery. Specifically, it's the epidemiologists that we've relied on to understand exactly how the virus is spreading. The situation in Europe is worsening. Many countries are seeing all-time record cases. So these are cases higher than during the first wave. So the UK reported 17,540 cases yesterday. France, almost 19,000, followed by Spain, almost 13,000. These disease detectives have now become our new rock stars and who we've turned to for hope. Unsurprisingly, they've been thrust into the limelight and they keep popping up across our media all over the world. At the Burnett Institute in Melbourne, Australia, Professor Michael Toole on the line. I am Sabrina Institute Epidemiologist Professor Mike Tuli Mai Sapatno. Mike Tuli is a professor of the Burnett Institute. Burnett Institute's name is Michael Tuli. This is How Science Matters, a Burnett Institute podcast. I'm Tracy Parrish. Throughout this series, you'll meet some of Australia's visionary scientific thinkers. You'll find out what keeps them awake at night as they grapple with a pandemic and how science is playing a leading role in shaping our response. My co-host is Professor Brendan Crabb, head of the Burnett Institute, a microbiologist, malaria researcher, and one of the best minds in infectious diseases and global health. Today, everyone's an epidemiologist. But what exactly is that? Prior to the pandemic, many people thought they were skin doctors. And at least by now, most people realise we don't actually treat skin diseases. Hi, I'm Mike Toole. I'm an epidemiologist at the Burnett Institute and the technical advisor to the No C19 Knowledge Hub. And also, this is Mika, my adorable pandemic 
companion. She is going on two years old, and unusually, she is a breed from Madagascar. I did most of my training at the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They have a very short definition of epidemiology. It's the study of the occurrence of disease. We look at who is affected. It doesn't have to be an infectious disease. It could be a chronic disease. Who, when, and where. So person, place, and time is the basic rule of epidemiology. You try and characterize the spread of a disease or the evolution of a disease in those terms. Who's most at risk? That could be an age group. could be an occupation. could be male or female. When? So that looks at the evolution of the infection or the disease and where. So in what places are you most at risk for that infection or that disease? You know, there's a lot of disciplines that have come together to have to deal with the pandemic, but it's epidemiology that is the one. It's the one everyone's practising around the dinner table. Uh, yes. You know, literally everyone virtually in the whole world. Why is it above, say, a virologist or a vaccinologist or these other specialties, the clinicians? It's the epidemiologists that everybody wants to be. I think that's probably because everyone is interested in and often nervous about how the virus has been spreading and is spreading and might spread in the future. So people really look to epidemiologists to help them interpret trends. For example, during an outbreak, the number of daily cases may jump around. It might be 18 one day and 30 the next and then 14 the next. And so you can help interpret that by, for example, introducing the concept of, say, rolling averages, five days, seven days, sometimes only three days. And that's called descriptive epidemiology. That's just looking at the figures. The how involves a more sophisticated form of epidemiology. So those studies that are sometimes called cohort studies, case control studies, seek to explain the reason why an infection has arose and is continuing to transmit. And on the how, with COVID, were there some big surprises or lessons, things that jumped out at you that were different to what you'd expected or experienced before? Well, I think going back early in the pandemic, say January 2020, people knew it was a respiratory pathogen. Remember, initially, it wasn't even clear if it was spreading from person to person. That was clarified around the end of January. So people looked to previous respiratory infections or pathogens to see how they spread. And it took quite a long time to really understand how it was spreading. Even today, there's still debate about how it spreads. So initially, it was thought to spread mainly through close contact, large respiratory droplets that fell to the floor within 1.5 metres or six feet. And that guided the initial precautions. It took quite a while to recognise that the virus could also spread through very small particles called aerosols. And consequently, it took probably six months for the big public health agencies and governments to recommend mask wearing. Initially, also, there was a lot of attention paid to hand hygiene a lot of sanitizer, 
every time there were some cases linked to a venue like a shop or a nightclub or a hotel. Now, that was based on a feeling that the virus could spread through contact with surfaces. And that did occur, though only on a few occasions during the first SARS outbreak. And it was in Hong Kong and it was spread via a button in a lift. There's not been a single documented case of COVID-19 via contact with the surface, not a single one. While there's been heated discussions about just how this nasty virus spreads, in the early days, some people simply referred to COVID-19 as just being like a bad cold or flu. So did this downplaying of the threat of COVID set the pandemic response back? Well, I think it probably did, particularly in countries like the United States, where at the time there wasn't really clear public health leadership. The US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention was very slow to really engage with the pandemic. You'll recall they're very slow to develop an effective test for the virus. And there were very conflicting signals coming from the US government about whether it was just like a cold, which the then president was saying, or mild flu, it'll go away, it'll go away in the summer. So there were a lot of misconceptions and that confused people. And so many were very slow to adopt the recommended measures. Since the last great pandemic of HIV, there's been a lot of little scares along the way. You mentioned SARS earlier. When did you realise, hell, this is something we really do have to worry about? Do you have a moment there or something that happened? Yeah, so early in January, I was in Egypt and I tried to avoid the news as much as I could. I was on holiday in the south of Egypt and I checked on my phone, the New York Times, and there was this report out of China of a pneumonia disease. And I thought then, well, we've been here before with respiratory pathogens coming out of China. But I didn't pay much attention until I was flying home and was in Beirut airport. And once again, I checked the New York Times and saw that the World Health Organization had declared a public health emergency of international significance. And then I saw the number of cases in Wuhan had increased substantially. That was the moment when I thought, here we go, this could be the big one, because many people have been expecting a pandemic for many years now. Most people thought it would be a strain of influenza. It turned out to be a different virus, but it shouldn't have been a surprise because these things were so predictable knowing that there was increasing contact between wild animals and, and humans. There was a lot of rhetoric about pandemic preparedness, both at a world level and here in Australia, but clearly the world wasn't ready for it. Most of the world was not ready. If any countries were at least half prepared, they were all in Asia. And so China, in a way, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Vietnam. The rest of the world was not prepared. Do you think they weren't prepared mentally or they weren't prepared? There were no plans. So there had been a movement to better address 
these threats to health. And there was the global health security movement that started in the US. Australia signed up to it. And a lot of resources during the Obama administration went into that program. Resources were largely in response to Ebola, which was not a pandemic. It was a localised epidemic in three countries. When the following administration came into power, they basically cut off all those resources. Now, interestingly, there was in 2019 an assessment of which countries are best prepared for a health emergency, and the US came number one, and yet it proved to be one of the worst. So why is that? It didn't turn out to be a great predictor of who would do well. Because it didn't really take into account human behaviour, in particular the behaviour of politicians and governments. Now, Australia ranked fairly well, but if you look at the details, Australia was not prepared at all. There was a preparedness plan developed after the swine flu pandemic, but it really wasn't implemented. For example, Australia had not done any kind of simulation exercise for the last eight or nine years. That really led to a lack of preparedness, for example, for the arrival of a cruise ship in a large city with people infected. If they'd done a simulation of that exercise, everyone would have known what they were responsible for, who was in charge. When it actually happened, no one had a clue. But Mike, even though you might have these plans, when you've got a country like Australia who's not used to having epidemics like this, changing behaviour of the populace is super hard. And that only really came about when there were big lockdowns or other major um, issues confronting the population. I guess we shouldn't be surprised that Australians took a while to really adapt to it. Yes, you compare that to a country like Taiwan, where not only did the government have a very detailed plan for an event like this, the people were used to wearing masks. It had become a kind of routine way of protecting people around you. So if you had a cold or the flu in Taiwan, you would wear a mask to protect others. In Australia and other Western countries, there was no tradition like that. Those plans were not perfect. But you can see in Singapore how there was a major blind spot in the Singapore preparedness plan. And that was to make sure that migrant workers were protected because they were living in crowded dormitories. And that totally escaped the entire response. It seemed, for whatever reason to be pretty binary, China, South Korea, Taiwan, and then Australia, New Zealand, deciding to have nothing, if they could, to go for aggressive suppression and and to not live with the virus. I don't think we were considering the word elimination at that stage. And then others had a very different view, which now seems like folly. Is that the way it was at the time? Was it a line ball decision or were they just really out of line, some of those countries that let it go? Well, just staying in Asia, even within Asia and East Asia, there were different approaches. South Korea and Japan were very reluctant to introduce lockdowns like we have done in Australia. They weren't saying let's live with the virus, but they were in a delicate balancing act between shutting down the economy and allowing the virus to spread 
in an uncontrolled manner. And while South Korea was relatively successful, they're still paying the price of that juggling act. So I'd say Vietnam was closer to the approach taken by Australia and New Zealand in that they had a policy of not tolerating any transmission. They didn't do a national lockdown, but they did a lot of localised lockdowns of, say, Da Nang or Hanoi. Have you ever wondered, why is it that some countries just can't get to COVID zero? In Australia, we know it can be done. We've achieved it many times. But why not elsewhere? Does it come down to the sheer number of cases? Is it about the length of lockdowns? Or are there other factors at play? Countries where the government was slow to launch the initial response have done very poorly. Like Brazil, look like they can just never get out of it. It's just getting worse and worse in Brazil. And that, of course, initially was due to a president of the country not taking it seriously and saying in public that it was just like a cold. And so Brazil's paid a very heavy price. And to slightly lesser degrees, the US and UK suffered from that lack of leadership and therefore a reluctance to introduce what, by the middle of 2020, was pretty clear what you had to do. You had to keep people from mixing and mingling once you had the virus out into the community. Mike, the perception is, from what you've been saying about these successful countries, in inverted commas, that have, are at zero versus those that have a lot. In the countries that have done well, they've had a lot of lockdown to get to doing well, whereas the countries that have done badly have at least been freer. But I think that's totally the opposite, as I understand it. Have I got that right? Yes. And just look at the UK as an example. They were initially very reluctant to go into a lockdown. And after their second wave last year, they basically opened up the country just before Christmas. And you may recall the scenes on TV of crowds in London, no one wearing a mask and Harrods and all the stores full of people. And yet at the time, they were still reporting thousands of cases a day. So then came their catastrophic third wave and they were very slow. It wasn't actually until Christmas Day that they took some kind of action. There's whole new words that have come into our vocabulary over this pandemic and the R word. We know it as reproduction number. It was really up close and personal last year. It was everywhere, wasn't it? The R number, what's the reproduction number? Is it 1.0? Has it gone to? It seems to have dropped away in 2021. Why is that? I think it was used in a different way early 2020 than it is today. So it was applied to whole populations rather than what truly is an average of how many people will be infected by an individual. So that's a good basis for tracking what's going on, but it doesn't explain everything. It doesn't really explain, for example, there's something called the dispersion factor for coronavirus, which in summary means that around about 20% of people who are infected will infect anyone else and the other 80% won't infect anyone. And that's probably due to variation in the viral load, the amount of virus people are carrying in their throat and nose. 
So that's these super spreading events? Yes. Hmm. So it means if you have a combination of a person who's just recently been infected and about to develop their symptoms or have just developed their symptoms, goes into an environment where there's poor ventilation, maybe people are shouting like in a bar or singing like in a church, and you could have this super spreading event. We saw it in a church last July in Western Sydney where an infected man was a member of the choir of the Our Lady of Lebanon Church. He was sitting with the choir upstairs, 3.5 metres above the congregation, and infected 12 people, one of whom was sitting 14 metres from him. Other people don't infect anyone. For example, a case in Perth has not infected her partner. So it is not a predictable virus. I'll compare it with measles. If a child has measles and goes into a room with a group of other children who are not vaccinated, they will all get infected, all of them. The reproductive rate for measles is about 18, compared with around 2.5 to 3 for the original Wuhan strain of the virus. Just before COVID-19 struck, Mike was actually planning a life away from disease control. After 40 years of working in more than 30 countries across five continents, he was ready to pull up stumps. But retirement had to take a back seat. I had planned to retire in June 2020. And after my long service leave, I had a chat with my boss, Brendan Crabb, and he wondered whether he I said, could... go for it, just enjoy your time, Mike. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I wonder if you could stay on at least till September. Oh, yes. Uh, 2020. Of 2024. <laughs> uh, yes. So the year wasn't specified. So it did change. I had concrete plans for my retirement. They included an oral history project on an island in the Nile where probably the oldest documented Jewish settlement was 3,000 years ago. So that was poor on hold. And then I guess I was working a lot harder than I had the previous year. And of course, the media was something I had not anticipated. I had been on the media when I was in the US. It was usually to do with crises like Rwanda or northern Iraq or Somalia. And it was usually with just one or two media outlets, almost always the New York Times and the Washington Post. But now I have the whole range of media contacting me. So that was a big change. Phone calls out of the blue. So not really being able to plan my day. Not being able to visit Egypt, of course, is the biggest personal issue that I've had to address. That's my second home. I have a flat there in a very nice part of Giza, but I haven't been there and I'm not sure when I will be able to visit again. And here I am still working Epidemiologists like yourself, Mike, have played such a key role in demystifying some of the big issues around COVID and helping explain the evidence for us. You've been in huge demand with media, both in Australia and internationally. I know there's been Al Jazeera and there's been Korean media and Israel. I'm aware you really trended Russia in Ireland. Today. Russia Today, Ireland Today. 
unfortunately, you got bumped, I believe, from Good Morning Britain. What happened there? I was signed up to appear live on Good Morning Britain, interviewed by Piers Morgan, who's a very controversial journalist. Just before I went on, which, of course, was around about 5 p.m. Melbourne time, I got a call saying, no, a certain princess or wife of a prince was about to give birth. I think she's a duchess. Duchess. So I got bumped. But I've had some other interesting and challenging media encounters. Probably the most memorable one to me, which wouldn't be known to many Australians, is that I did a very long Zoom interview with a Japanese journalist who I later found out is like considered almost the number one journalist in Japan. And he was very easygoing. And the topic was an opinion piece that I'd written about the danger of holding the Tokyo Olympics. So halfway through, I got ambushed in a big way. He said, what do you think of the comments made by the chair of the Japanese Olympic Committee and former Prime Minister Mori about women? And I thought, it is on Zoom. I could just turn it off. So I said, I thought they were old-fashioned and disrespectful. So the next day, I started getting texts from my friends in Japan saying, your photo's on the front page of Tokyo's biggest paper, Manichi, and you're in the headline. And the headline is, in Japanese, former Prime Minister, old-fashioned and disrespectful, says Australian doctor. But then friends got in touch and they were looking at the Facebook page of Mainichi, the newspaper, and they said 99% of people agree with you. So he lost his job because of you. Yes, next day. Well, aside from making international headlines for all the wrong reasons and finding himself in uncharted territory... Mike was also up against armchair or amateur epidemiologists. But what was the cost of that? Many of those people had strayed way out of their field and were quickly trying to catch up on what epidemiologists do. Some of them, of course, weren't even health professionals. They were self-made experts. And, of course, the most vociferous and dangerous were those that would say, and they'd quote figures, was that this virus is not very dangerous. So I think that was probably the worst mistake because it did influence a lot of people to not take the virus seriously. A big lesson of the pandemic is that it's a pandemic, (laughs) that it isn't an Australian disease, and that it targets those with the least poorest countries, the poorest in our own community, those who are otherwise vulnerable. Do we still have a blind spot there? Is the world tackling this? Do we really realise that unless we deal with that, this isn't coming to an end? I think it may be just natural that people have focused on their own country and their own communities within that country because it is a virus that can kill you. So I think people have understandably looked inwards. But I think now is the time to basically acknowledge that we won't get rid of the virus in any single country until the whole world is protected. 
And the only way to do that is to vaccinate the whole world. So I think there's an increasing realisation of that, that we will be trapped inside our own country until other countries are safe. And I think you can see now the current administration in the US has acknowledged that and donating quite large numbers of vaccines to poorer countries. And I think it probably will gain momentum, but probably not until the wealthy countries are vaccinated. And some of them are still behind. They're mostly in our region. So South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand. And it's going to take a while before we can, we as Australians, say, OK, we feel safe. Now we will share our bounty with our neighbours. How much do you think the WHO's reputation's been bruised by the last 18 months or so of this pandemic? It used to be revered as an organisation that was a world leader, and yet I know in this country we don't hear much from them and it doesn't have as much traction now as perhaps it did. I think some of the criticism of WHO has been misplaced. Much has been made of the delay, it was only by a week, in declaring a public health emergency of international concern. But WHO really had their hands tied because following the Ebola outbreak and other outbreaks of respiratory disease, there was something called the International Health Regulations, which were endorsed around 2007 by all the member nations. And those international health regulations were good in one way, but they also tied the hands of the Director General of WHO, who could not unilaterally go out and say, we've got a problem. The country involved had to be consulted. And WHO had no authority to send in a team to investigate and help control an outbreak. So I think overall, since those first bumps in January 2020, their performance has been good. And they've certainly stood up for the poorer countries of the world. Mike, we're fond of saying that we've been following the science, but it's not been universal that there's been an embracing in inverted commas of the science. Why has that been so tough when other science gets accepted so readily, do you think? I think saying something like follow the science and listen to the medical experts has been challenging because not all medical experts agree with each other. And particularly in those first six to nine months when it still wasn't clear how the virus circulates and what works in preventing it. And you have very different opinions emerging. And that's really the nature of science and medicine is that there is a healthy debate about certain issues. Now, airborne transmission is a tough one. A lot of people think that the resistance to acknowledging airborne transmission was due to a dogma that really emerged in the 1950s around about tuberculosis and also measles, that they were transmitted by these large droplets. And that dogma has stuck, even though it's been acknowledged that both TB and measles can be spread through these small aerosol particles. There was resistance to really look closely at COVID-19 transmission. And some people are still stuck in that dogma. And of course, it included very senior people in the World Health Organization, in the US Centers for Disease Control, 
and in a number of expert committees, including in Australia. I'd say we're not there yet in Australia. We've seen in one city in Brisbane three separate leaks in hotel quarantine that could only be explained by airborne spread. So from one room to another. And that's because the expert advice that is guiding the Queensland Health's practices has not acknowledged airborne transmission. And so you have this huge difference between different states. Some states have acknowledged the importance of airborne transmission and have therefore done audits and rectified problems with ventilation in hotels. And they're giving their frontline staff the very best protection through respiratory or N95 masks, but others are not. We kind of lack national leadership that could, using the authority of the federal government, bring the states and territories together and insist on developing what I call a national code of practice. Why weren't these problems fixed last year when we had plenty of evidence that there were leaks in hotels and therefore maybe shifted to fit-for-purpose facilities like Howard Springs near Darwin, which has never had a leak. When you get three leaks in a week in Queensland, it's really beyond a joke. It really is. Mike, with the global pandemic as it progressed, one of the things that might have surprised people is, yes, you learn a lot about it, but also it keeps changing. There's shifting sands. The vaccine's obviously made against the original virus. Now we have variants. There's this a continual game of catch-up. Do you see an end game? It's hard to use a crystal ball with this pandemic because, as you say, the situation changes so abruptly. We haven't totally learned that we need to be nimble and adapt to the changing situation. In this case, the Delta variant. Vaccination is the key to even thinking about living with a low level of virus. Two countries that I've seen that are developing or have developed pretty comprehensive plans for exit strategies are Singapore and Malta, which have similar vaccination levels. Particularly Malta's had a very thorough, comprehensive consultation process, and that will be critical. You just don't want a room full of people in Canberra brainstorming and writing a plan. It needs to be based on consultation. And of course, vaccination coverage will be the big decider, but there are also other issues. As the goalposts keep shifting around our pandemic response, Professor Mike Toole has become a household star. But it's not just his no-nonsense and reassuring breakdown of the crisis that's quelled our anxiety. His furry COVID companion, Mika the Pooch, has also become very popular. I was very lucky. I got Mika after I came back from Egypt. And she immediately changed my life because we went into lockdown in March. She's been an adorable dog. She's extremely popular in my neighbourhood. People fight over having her to dog sit. And, of course, she's just watched this train of camera crews arrive and she just sits there and watches them and sometimes appears in the shoot. I don't know what I would have done without Mika. And just finally, Mike, 
What keeps you up at night? It comes and goes. Some nights I just go straight to sleep. And I think it's fair to say that across Australia now, most people, many people in the cities particularly, have a degree of anxiety that they haven't had for a very long time. Also, of course, what keeps me awake is if I have to get up early in the morning and give an interview on seven sunrise or something, I do start practising and that's not a good way to get to sleep. Between media appearances, Mike Toole continues to work tirelessly to stay one step ahead of the virus. An unlikely celebrity, perhaps, but a hero nevertheless in a time of coronavirus. How Science Matters was produced by Written and Recorded. This is a Burnett Institute podcast. For over 30 years, we've been at the forefront of infectious disease research, public health and national health security. COVID-19 is a complex global health challenge, so please join us in the fight against the pandemic and help us to remind everyone how science matters. If you liked this episode, catch Brendan and I for the next one. Is COVID normal really possible? To hear more, search for How Science Matters on the Burnett Institute website or wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this episode with two friends or more. If they're new to podcasts, show them how to follow our show. We want this podcast to spread like a virus, but in a good way. I'm Tracy Parrish. See you next time. This podcast series was recorded during June and July 2021. In this evolving pandemic, please search for the latest official coronavirus advice in your area.